This is the conclusion of Paul's letter, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24. And in his conclusion, we find something of a summary of the theology of the book of Ephesians. It's not necessarily in that form, but the way he closes his letter is most certainly in keeping with what he's written all the way through. He says in verse 24, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. That word that the ESV translates as incorruptible could properly be translated undying. It's a word that is translated in Romans 2.7 and 2 Timothy 1.10 as immortality. It's a word that is used to describe the resurrected body of Christ and our resurrected bodies that we look forward to in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That which is never to die, immortal, incorruptible. So he refers to or describes Christians as those who have an undying love for Christ. Those who have an undying love for Christ. And if we latch on to this phrase and look at the way that Paul uses it here in this section and some of the implications about what he does not and could not mean given what he's written previously in the book of Ephesians, we'll come to have a good understanding of this conclusion and we'll come to have a good summary of the book of Ephesians as a whole to which these verses form a conclusion. So we're going to latch on to that phrase about an undying love for Christ and look at three things about that undying love this morning. First, that, that the Christian's undying love for Christ is itself a work of grace. Secondly, that the Christian's undying love for Christ is not yet perfected. And third, that the Christian's undying love for Christ is not passive. And we're going to see that that, as we unpack these things, it'll give us a good sense of what Paul is saying to the Ephesians here in the conclusion, as well as what he's been saying all along in the book as a whole. So let's begin with that first thing. The Christian's undying love for Christ is itself a work of grace. Paul describes Christians as those who have an undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful description that is of what Christianity is, what Christianity means, what Christianity looks like. Christians are those who have an undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul is not here trying to highlight the superiority of Christians over those who are non-Christians. He's not trying to pat the Ephesians on the back and be like, referring to them as those who have an undying love for Christ in the sense that he's like, good for you. You, unlike the rest of the world, have an undying love for Christ. He's not using this phrase in that sense to highlight some supposed inherent superiority of the Ephesian Christians over others. 
he's using this phrase as a reminder to the Ephesians of the work of grace that has brought them to this section and the, the privileged state that they are in, that they have an undying love for Christ. I mentioned already that the other places, or some other places where this word is used in the New Testament, Romans 2.7, 2 Timothy 1.10, 1 Corinthians 15, talking about immortality, talking about the resurrected body, never to die. What Paul is saying is that you who were once spiritually dead with no love for Christ, have now been brought to spiritual life never to die. You love Christ with an undying love. He's highlighting that aspect of resurrection that he's dealt with earlier in the text. We Christians are not those who are inherently better than anyone else, as if everybody was in the same state with the same capacity And we looked at the gospel message and we made a wiser choice, a better choice. We offered a better response to the gospel than others did. And so we pat ourselves on the back as if we are the ones who have an undying love for Christ. Not at all. That's not the emphasis that Paul is trying to bring out in using this phrase. He's trying to bring out rather this emphasis that you were just like everyone else with no love for Christ. You didn't need to be improved. You needed to be resurrected. And indeed, that is what God has done for you. He has brought you from death to life, never to die again. You are now those who have an undying love for Christ. This is the emphasis that he's bringing out in using this phrase. And that theology goes all the way back to chapter 1 of his letter, which for us might seem like a long time ago because we started it back in September. But for the first hearers, it was just a few moments ago that Tychicus had read from what we now call Ephesians chapter 1 because Tychicus arrived with his letter and read it to them from start to finish. And so just a few moments ago, they had been reminded, or they had been instructed about this truth that God, the Father, Ephesians verse, chapter 1, and verse 3 and following, God the Father has blessed us, that is Christians, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus. The Ephesian Christians are Christians because they have been loved with an everlasting love. But how would it be right for a holy God to love sinners, those who have broken God's law, To make them sons. To bless them instead of cursing them. How would it be right? We read that God the Father planned the salvation and Christ Jesus in verse 7 of chapter 1. 
brought those very people redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of their trespasses. Christ Jesus met the legal requirements that the Ephesian Christians did not and could never have met. Christ Jesus came and lived a sinless life in place of the Ephesian sinners whom God had purposed to bless. And Christ Jesus went to a Roman cross and died, bearing in Himself a curse. For it is written, as Galatians says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Not because Christ Jesus deserved to be cursed, but because those Ephesian sinners whom God the Father desired to bless needed to have their curse poured out upon someone. And Christ Jesus went to the cross to bear that curse as a substitute. And so a holy and a righteous God acts righteously and justly to bless those who don't deserve it by sending His Son, Christ Jesus, to act as a substitute for them, meeting on their behalf the legal requirements of His law. And yet, these Ephesian sinners whom the Father has planned to bless and for whom Christ Jesus has come and lived and died would still be unregenerate in the state that all people are born since Adam's fall, blind and deaf to the things of God with no love for Christ in them. By nature, no one loves Christ. By nature, there is no spiritual life in us and there was no spiritual life in them. And so what we see is the Father having planned this blessing of these sinners and the Son having come and met the legal requirements so that a holy God could justly bless these sinners. The Holy Spirit comes to make these people sensible to God's plan, aware of it, to open their blind eyes to see and to behold what the triune God has done for their salvation. Gives them ears to hear the good news of salvation through Christ Jesus. That it is indeed the Father's plan to bless that Christ Jesus has come to live and to die for you. And that by faith, you sinner, can be reconciled to God. The Holy Spirit comes and works that in the Ephesian sinners whom God the Father purposed to bless. And we see that in chapter 1, verse 11 where it says that we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. 
You see, he who works all things according to the counsel of his will made a plan, sent God the Son, Christ Jesus, to the cross to accomplish the legal basis for the accomplishing of his plan, and then sent the Holy Spirit to bring dead sinners effectually to faith in Christ Jesus. We see this also, again, repeated in different words in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And what does this deadness look like? It looks like following the course of this world, Ephesians 2.2. 2. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Again, this is where the Ephesians were. They were dead in their trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, doing what everybody else does, following the prince of the power of the air, doing Satan's bidding, essentially, living in the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. They didn't love Jesus, they loved sin. And they were, therefore, by nature, children of wrath. They deserved God's wrath like the rest of mankind. But what happened? Again, God being rich in mercy, Ephesians 2.4. Why? Because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. You didn't deserve it. You didn't deserve it, Ephesians. And people here, Christians here at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church, you didn't deserve it. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You had no love for Christ. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive together with Christ Jesus. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, the Christian's undying love for Christ Jesus is itself a work of grace. The Christian wouldn't have an undying love for Jesus if it were not for the grace of God. The Christian would have no love for Christ Jesus and thereby not be a Christian if it were not for the grace of God. So that's our first point, and that's the emphasis that Paul is bringing out as he refers to Christians in chapter 6 and verse 24 as those who have an undying love for Christ Jesus. You have been spiritually resurrected, never to die again. The second thing that we see about 
the undying love of Christians for our Savior is that our love is not yet perfected. In other words, it doesn't die, but it is all too often weak and impure. The Christian's love for Christ is never entirely absent. The Christian, the true, genuine Christian, is never without any vital signs. But too often, our love for Christ is weak and impure. Paul doesn't say to those who love Christ Jesus with a perfect, never coming up short, always what it should be, love for Christ Jesus. He says those who love Christ with an undying love. Those who are alive to Christ Jesus. Whose love is alive to Christ Jesus. Our love for Christ Jesus may be short of breath. Our love for Christ Jesus may have heart problems. Our love for Christ Jesus may have jaundice. Our love for Christ Jesus may have a respiratory condition. But our love for Christ Jesus will not die if we are Christians. It is an undying love. Not yet a perfect love. Paul prays at the end of this epistle that those who have an undying love for Christ will have grace, peace, and love. He's not saying that they don't have a measure of any of these things already. Obviously, based on what he's already written in this letter. And so what he's asking, what he's petitioning God for is more. More grace to those who already have an undying love. More peace to those who already have an undying love. And more love to those who already have an undying love. And so we see that the Christian's undying love for Christ is not yet perfected. Grace... Verse 24, be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Again, by grace you have been saved. So you've already received a measure of grace. More, Paul prays, more grace. Oh God, give more grace to these Ephesians who have already received grace. The, the grace that has made them alive together with Christ was the beginning. Pour more grace upon them, O God, I pray. This is the essence of what Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 24. Peace, he says in verse 23. Peace be to the brothers. Again, the brothers, Christians. Coterminous with those who already have an undying love for Christ. That's just another way of saying the same thing. Christians, peace be to the brothers. Well, we've already seen, and remember, this is just one letter. So the Ephesians have this fresh in their mind as they come to the conclusion. What Tychicus has read to them just a few minutes ago. We've already seen that there is peace. In Christ Jesus, already, 
to those who are Christians, who have trusted in Christ Jesus. Back in chapter 2, for Christ Himself is our peace. Verse 16, He has reconciled us to God through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. God is justly wrathful towards sinners because of our sin. People are born into hostility with God because of our sin. The guilt and the corruption that is ours from birth. Christ Jesus has come according to the Father's will, according to the Father's plan, in order that He may justly lay down His sword. See, the Father's holiness demands His wrath against sin. The Father's holiness demands His hostility towards sinners. Christ Jesus has come to reconcile us to God through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. God imputes our sin to Christ Jesus and punishes Christ Jesus for our sin. Imputes Christ's righteousness to us, though we don't deserve it, in order that He might count us as righteous and lay down His sword. So Christians already have a measure of peace. By definition, that's what it means to be a Christian. Somebody who's been reconciled to God. Somebody who's no longer under God's wrath. And Christians have already experienced a measure of peace between ourselves and others. We read that He has brought, in the same chapter, chapter 2, that Christ has brought Jews and Gentiles together. Together. So that Jews and Gentiles alike both have access in one Spirit to the Father. That's Ephesians 2, 18. Any, if even that divinely ordained distinction that was valid throughout the Old Testament between Jews and Gentiles has been laid aside by the cross of Christ, how much more should any man-made distinction be laid aside at the cross of Christ? So we've already experienced a measure of reconciliation not only with God, but with others through the cross of Christ. There's really nothing that should keep Christians from one another. There's really, there's really nothing. Socioeconomic status, race, whatever it is that keeps people outside of Christ Jesus away from one another. That really shouldn't keep Christians away from one another. Because in Christ Jesus, we are all one. In Christ Jesus, we all have access to the same Father by the same Spirit. We've been reconciled together in Christ Jesus. And yet Paul prays for more peace. More peace. That we would enjoy the benefits of reconciliation to God. That it's, it's wouldn't be just intellectual for us, but that it would be experiential for us, that we would feel ourselves adopted as sons, as he talks about a couple times in the book of Ephesians. And not only, and that we would understand that the peace is not only an absence of conflict, in that God is no longer 
hostile towards us, wrathful towards us, but that actually He welcomes us into His family. Peace is not just the absence of conflict, biblically, but the presence of wholeness and life and well-being. The Father has chosen us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us not simply for the removal of wrath against us, but for adoption as sons. These are the kinds of things that Paul wants us to know, to experience, to take hold of. And as we've seen, not just intellectually, but in a felt way, to get these things. Peace. Would the Lord minister His peace to those who have already been reconciled to Him? Would the church experience harmony? Not just, again, absence of conflict with one another, but as Ephesians 4 talks about, that they would work together as fellow members of the same body so that the body would build itself up in love. Again, not just the absence of hostility, but the presence of wholeness and harmony. Oh God, would you bring further peace, a further experience of peace, a further apprehension of peace to those who have already experienced a measure of peace, both with God and with others. And then love, he says in 6.23, and love with faith. The sense of this is love in addition to faith. They already have faith. They already have a measure of love, but that their love would increase more and more. That those who already have faith would be would be more loving? Would God work that in them? Would they love God more and more? Would they love the people around them more and more? These are the kind of things that Paul has been hitting on all the way through the book. If you just go through and just count how many times Paul talks about love in Ephesians, it's a lot. Paul is praying that those who already have faith would have love, that their faith would be worked out by love, that their faith would look like love in action more and more and more. Would God do this? We see, so we see even in this conclusion that the Christian's undying love for Christ is not yet perfected. If it is, why is Paul praying for more grace, peace, and love for these Christians? They are not yet what they ought to be. And so Paul prays for them, though they already have an undying love, that this undying love would be perfected. That they would receive grace and peace and love in order that their maturity in Christ would increase and be eventually perfected. This is in keeping with Paul's previous prayers, petitions for the Ephesians in the book. At the end of chapter 1, he prays. At the end of chapter 3, he prays. Throughout chapters 4, 5, and 6, he gives imperatives. It's so obvious from reading Ephesians that the Christian's undying love for Christ is not yet perfected. And so, Paul, and Paul is bringing that out in the conclusion, asking that in addition to the grace that they've already received, that they would receive more, and so forth. The third thing that we see, the first thing was, 
the Christian's undying love for Christ is itself a work of grace. The second thing we've seen is that the Christian's undying love for Christ is not yet perfected. The third thing that we see in this passage is that the Christian's undying love for Christ is not passive. In the conclusion, it's obvious that Paul expects the Ephesian Christians to welcome Tychicus, the beloved brother that he's sending. He does not clearly expect them to turn him away. It's further expected that they will listen to Tychicus. It's further expected that they will reflect on what he says and so be encouraged. Not just that they will merely hear the syllables that Tychicus come out of Tychicus' mouth, but that they will reflect on what he says and be encouraged. In saying that he's sending them him to them with a message, there's some implications involved that he's expecting that they'll actively receive him, actively listen to him, and actively reflect on what he says and so be encouraged. And so the Christian's undying love for Christ and their growth in that undying love for Christ is not passive. For the, for the Ephesian Christians, it involved listening to Tychicus, welcoming and listening to Tychicus, among other things. But we've seen all through the letter the same idea. It's not the first place that the Ephesians are asked to put in some effort. That this is not the first place that Paul has insinuated that the Christian life is not passive. All the way along, Paul's description of the Christian life teaches us that it's not passive. Even in the beginning of the Christian life, we are not passive. We are passive in regeneration, which is an act of God, whereby He brings us from death to life. He changes us qualitatively. This is what's described in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. God changes us without our help, without our activity, without our effort. God comes to us when? Ephesians 2, 5. When we were dead in our trespasses. So had we begun to get alive yet? No. Were we sort of alive? No. We were dead. And when we were dead, at that very time, we read that God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. Regeneration is something that God alone does, and we are passive in it. He gives us the new birth. We don't... We don't sometimes you hear evangelists talk about, you need, to, you need to get born again. Well, how do I get born again? Well, you trust in Jesus. That's kind of a mixed up way of saying it, because what you do to get born again is nothing. God, God gives you the new birth. You are, you are dead, and then you're alive. God gives you the new birth. But here's the thing, and here's the thing that we need to understand. A person becoming a Christian is not an entirely passive thing. The regeneration part of it is passive. But by grace you are saved through faith. So what happens is this. This is how it looks like in practice. Somebody is dead in their trespasses and sins. They are following the course of this world. 
following the prince of the power of the air that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, living in the passions of their flesh, and are a child of wrath. As 2 Corinthians 4 teaches us, the God of this world has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing God's glory in the face of His Son. They have no love for Christ, no interest in Christ. When the Gospel is preached to somebody who is spiritually dead, they're not interested in hearing it. They reject it. But then what happens? What's happened to all of us Christians is that at some point, God, by His Spirit, qualitatively changes a person. Opens their blind eyes. Unlocks their deaf ears. Brings them from death to life. So that they are no longer dead in their trespasses and sins. No longer desirous of carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. No longer simply living in the passions of their flesh. They begin to feel conviction of sin. Become sensible to the fact that God is wrathful towards them because of their sin. And then they hear this gospel message that in Christ Jesus, I may find pardon, forgiveness of sins. And the person who has been given that new birth responds. And response is an active word. You exercise faith. You make a decision for Christ. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's where I say, at the outset even, at the beginning of our Christian life, the very first act that we do as a regenerate person is active. Faith in Christ. And then all the way through, all the way along, We are active in the Christian life. Our undying love needs to be active. We can't just say, well, we love Christ, but we don't follow His commands. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Whoever loves Christ keeps His commandments. We see this regularly through the Scripture. So what love looks like is active obedience toward Christ. And so in the beginning... We are not passive. In the middle, we are not passive. All the way through the Christian life, we are not passive. We need to put effort forward in growing that imperfect, undying love. It hasn't yet been perfected, remember? That's the second thing that we touched. Therefore, by implication, it needs to grow. We need to grow. We need to pursue greater love for Christ. We need to pursue greater maturity in Christ Jesus. And this is not a passive thing. We need to put forth effort. Paul expects that of the Ephesians here in his conclusion. Again, as I said, to welcome Tychicus to listen to him, to reflect on what he says, and so be encouraged. He's writing in order that they would be encouraged. He tells us that explicitly. Chapter 6 and verse 22. But the means by which they will be encouraged is to receive Tychicus, to listen to him, to think about what he says. 
both in terms of the letter he brings as well as the report that he brings of Paul. And so Paul expects the Ephesians to be active in growing in their in the quality of their undying love for Christ. Likewise, we should be active and not passive. As Paul expected the Ephesians to receive Tychicus and the letter that he brought, so we, we also ought to receive at least his letter, right? Tychicus himself will not come and visit us here, but the letter that Tychicus brought to those original Ephesians has been preserved for us. We have to give thought to it. And that's it active thing. Think about it and thereby grow in Christ Jesus. We receive reports from other Christians elsewhere in the world as Tychicus brought a report about Paul. We should think about these things. Think about how God is at work in the world. Recognize that stories of Christians in other places or even in our own local church, our brothers and sisters here, are case studies of the doctrine that is recorded for us in Scripture. In other words, Paul is, in relaying his own circumstances and the way that God is at work, he's putting flesh and bones on on the doctrine contained in the Scripture of the efficacy of the Word of God, the power of the Gospel being the power of God unto salvation, the necessity of laying aside every sin and the weight that so easily entangles and running with perseverance the race before, of being single-minded in devotion to Christ, that to live is Christ and to die is gain, to make it our ambition to please Him. Paul's a living example of these doctrines. Right? And so we also likewise ought to consider the example of other Christians as the Ephesians were to consider Paul's example and so be encouraged by it. To be encouraged by God's preservation of other Christians as the Ephesian Christians were encouraged by God's preservation of Paul, etc., etc. And then Paul is not passive in helping others obtain and grow in undying love for Christ. He's not, he's not, he, doesn't expect, he expects them not to be passive in experiencing more Growth, but he's also not passive in helping them experience more growth. For one thing, he wrote the letter. He instructs them. For another thing, he reports to them of what he's doing and what he's up to and how God is at work in his life and through his ministry. Likewise, we should not be passive in helping others grow in maturity in Christ either whether through just the brother-to-brother and sister-to-sister instruction that happens, whether through sharing how God has been at work in our lives, being able to give an example of something He's been teaching us from the Word of God and how our situations, we've seen God at work in our situations, etc., etc. As Paul was not passive in helping them grow, neither should we be passive in helping one another grow. So those are the three things that we can unpack about the Christian's undying love for Christ as contained in the close of this letter. First, it is itself a work of grace. Second, it's not yet perfected. And third, 
the Christian's undying love for Christ is not passive. In Christ alone, our hope is found, but we don't experience the grace that comes from Christ passively. Perhaps you consider yourself a Christian, and yet you don't have an undying love for Christ. Perhaps you consider yourself a Christian and you've never actively trusted in Christ Jesus, consciously shifted your allegiance and your trust toward Christ Jesus to save you from your sins. If you don't have an undying love for Christ, if you don't have an active trust and an active reliance upon Christ, You may consider yourself a Christian, but the book of Ephesians and even what we've unpacked here in the close of this letter shows that you actually are not. You are not a Christian the way that Paul describes a Christian here. The way that Paul has told us what a Christian is in the book of Ephesians. If this is you, you may have walked in here and thought, I'm a Christian, but you've realized that you don't have love for Christ. You don't have a genuine love for Christ. You Maybe you have a love for other people's admiration and respect, and that prompts you to be in church. Maybe you have a love for morality in some abstract sense, trying to be a good person, and that prompts you to be in church. or something. But you've realized you don't just have love for Christ. You're not a Christian. Or maybe you've realized that you've thought of Christianity maybe as something that you've been born into, That because your parents were Christians, you're therefore a Christian. And you've heard today that being a Christian involves active love for Christ. Active faith in Christ. And that you don't have that active faith in Christ. Or that active love for Christ. This is you, again, no matter what you may have thought of yourself up until now, biblically, you're not a Christian. You need to trust in Christ Jesus actively. By grace you are saved. You don't have to save yourself. You don't have to earn merit, salvation. You can't. But you do need to actively rely on Christ Jesus who merits salvation for lost sinners who could never merit it ourselves. Perhaps you already are a Christian and you recognize that you do have an undying love for Christ, but it's it's an asthmatic, jaundiced, weak love for Christ, sickly love for Christ. And you're like, yeah, it's there, but I'm not healthy. I'm not where I should be or what I ought to be in terms of my love for Christ. Take comfort that Paul describes Christians here by implication as those whose love toward Christ is not yet perfected. There is a category for Christians who have real but imperfect love toward Christ. Take encouragement from that. If you are actively trusting in Christ Jesus 
and Him alone to save you from sin, and you're actively trying to respond to what He's done for you with obedience toward Him, not to earn salvation, not to try to earn it in retrospect, in other words, pay Him back for something, just trusting Him alone and out of love for Him, out of gratitude, out of duty that you have toward Him, you're just trying to obey Him as best as you can and in so doing, love Him. But you recognize that your efforts are not what they should be. Take comfort because that's exactly how Paul describes Christians in this passage. Take comfort in that. And non-Christians and Christians alike Hear this. The Christian life is not passive. It is. Stands on a foundation of grace. The Christian life has nothing to do with earning. The Christian life has nothing to do with merit. We see that throughout the book of Ephesians and even here in the conclusion. But the Christian life certainly includes effort. So non-Christians and Christians alike, I call you to effort. To respond to the Christ alone in whom salvation and hope is found with effort. The response actually, maybe surprisingly, for non-Christians and Christians moving forward is the same. Faith in Christ today, right now. And then tomorrow again as you wake up. And every day moving forward. Love that is not just a feeling, but love that is active toward Christ. Love that manifests itself in, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.1, walking in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. That's what it looks like to become a Christian. And that's what it looks like to grow in Christ. That active faith and that active love day by day toward Christ Jesus in response to the unearned, unmerited salvation that He has won for us in the cross. This is a summary of the teaching of the whole book of Ephesians as well as drawing out some of the implications of this last section his final greetings.